0: All right, all right, good morning. Come on, you excited to be here this morning? You excited to be here worshiping together with our church family? Man, it's one of my favorite parts of the week, get together and worship with our church family, and it's so good to be together. Welcome to our Ashland Campus. Thank you for joining in. Everybody watching online as well. We're in this series called Seven. We're really excited. This Wednesday, we kick back our family nights. You excited for family nights starting back this week? Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Uh, we're going to continue talking a bit through the book of Revelation. I think we're going to address probably the two witnesses and begin into the Battle of Armageddon. Somebody thinks right now, are we about to go into World War III or are we getting ready to go into the Battle of Armageddon? What's coming up and, and what's taking place? And so if that interests you, we're going to talk a little bit about that on Wednesday night. You don't want to miss it, 7 p.m. Also, just a little commercial for this as well. Next, next Saturday, guess what you get? Actually, next Sunday morning. You get an extra hour of sleep, so we get to fall back. I know some of you hate time change, but you might want to make sure you put that on calendar or you ain't going to get extra hour of sleep. So you might want to fall back, just fix your calendar and your time and stuff so we can be on schedule next week to worship together. Some of you are thankful for an extra hour, some of you hate darkness at three o'clock in the afternoon. So, but it's okay, we will work through that. Grab your Bibles, go to Revelations chapter two, Revelations chapter two, we're doing the the seven churches in the book of Revelation. most people don't know this, but the book of Revelation is authored obviously by King Jesus himself. Uh, the apostle John scribed it, but Jesus told him what to say. And it was written to seven real churches in Asia. And the seven churches received the letter. And so here's the apostle John's kick to the island of Patmos. He has the vision from the Lord. He writes down what God tells him to, and then he copies it seven times, and he sends it out to the seven churches churches. We have a map of the seven churches, which is in modern-day Turkey today. But if you will look at the map, we started with the Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Theratyr, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. This is the this is the tree. It looks like a horseshoe. Why is it this order? Because that's the way the mail ran. That was the postal route. And so it started with Ephesus. We already talked about that in Smyrna. And today, we're right here in Pergamon. And so really, uh, Really excited about jumping into this one today because there's a lot of historical context to really think through. We talked about Alexander the Great. Remember, he came through and he conquered the land at a very young age and the world known at the time, the known world, he actually conquered it. And in 301 BC, he gave this area, this city, to his general who led his army. And the general built this city up, Pergama built this city up, and as he began to get older and pass away, he deeded it off all of his, to his heirs. And so this city was passed down for generations to generations to generations. And then in 133 BC, a guy named Atlas III, Atlas the first, Atlas II, this is Atlas III, is on his deathbed and he passes away, and in his will, he shocks everyone. In his will, he, he wills his property this whole city this part of asia minor he wills it to rome out of the blue now we're sitting here and you scratch your hand like in your back of that time like why would you will it to another country why would you will it to rome and you could see the hand of god in this rome came in and rome built the empire and rome did all these things to make a pathway for the gospel to make it to rome sometimes we don't understand what god's up to you can look around the world and see that but we notice at this time that God used this moment for, for the gospel to be carried to Rome. And so he deeds it to Rome. And Rome comes in at 133 BC. That's 133 years before Jesus was born and built this city. And when Rome built, moved in, they brought in everything. They brought in the gods. They brought in the goddesses. They brought in their systems, their culture, their structure. They brought in the Roman Empire, the imperial cult. They did everything at this point. And so now they build this city up and the city's running great. It became the head center. It came where the governor of this area, the governor of all this Asia Minor would be stationed. And, and so now Jesus comes on scene, we know the story, and then 100 years past that, we have, this little, we have this town here that had all these great, great, great gods that they were worshiping. All the main gods were there. In fact, today excavators have found there were 61 altars. There's even a stone to an unknown god. Paul talks about that in another city, but in this city, in case we forgot about a God that's out there, let's make him this unknown God. What's some of the big gods? Some of you know these, you've heard this if you took anything in class before. Well, the most powerful one was Zeus, the altar of Zeus. You can go today to Pergamum. I'll show you a picture in a moment. But you could go there today and you could see what was the altar to Zeus today, 2,000 years later. Some of these ruins, you could go and visit and see them. And so if you needed power in your life, you go to the temple of Zeus and you would pray to Zeus for Zeus to give you power. And then there was a God of pleasure, Dionysus. Dionysus was the, the, the wine, the, the uh, fertility God, the transformation God. I'll talk a little bit more about him in a little bit. And then if there was nothing going good in your life from the crops in the field and you need to put food on the table, you would go to the goddess Demeter. And you would go to her temple and you would pray, would you please allow it to rain? Would you please bring food to our family? We need you to be our provider. They were there. And then, Asipalus. I don't know if you've ever heard about this guy. If not, you've, you've, you, I'm gonna show you in a moment how he, he's, even today, has impacted our culture. But this is fascinating, I wish I had so much time and pictures and tours to walk you through this, the things that I, I've been sending, but Asipalus was the God of healing. And so if you needed to be healed from anything in your life, you would go to sepulchre. And so you would walk in this place and you would pay a token. You would pay for them to tell you what was wrong with you, for the God to tell you what was wrong with you, and so that you could be healed. And so you would make a payment into this hole here and you would pay the God. And then they believed that sepulchre was the living water. And they built this tunnel that you would walk through with air holes above you, look into the sky, and there was water rushing through this under your walkway. And when you hear the water, you would hear the voice of a syphilis who was the living water. And then you would go into this dark tra- chamber where they would put you into a trance. I'm gonna freak some of you out right here. It's okay, it's Halloween. And uh, they, they would put you like into this trance and you would lay all over the floor. So people would lay all over the floor and at night, while you slept there, they would release snakes and snakes would crawl all over you at nighttime. And when they, <laughs> I'm with you, bro. And, and when that happened, this is when the healing power of a syphilis would come all, oh, over you. And then you would either be healed or not be healed. And this was like the Mayo Clinic of the day. Like if you wanna go to Cleveland Clinic, like MD Anderson, like this was the place you go if you needed healing in your life. In fact, it's been so marked on our culture today, and when you see a medical symbol today, guess what you see on it? Here's a picture of it. You see a staff with a snake. You know why the snake's there, no matter what medical field? It's because of the God of Asipulus, because it's the God of healer who heals and it will take care of you. It's crazy how the, the, the Greek mythology still impacts us of people's thoughts today. And then there's the God, goddess Athena. If you needed wisdom, you make a decision in your family, make a decision in the moon, make a decision in your life, you would go to the temple to the goddess of Athena, and you would pray, and you would ask her, would you give me wisdom? And if you were really sold out to Caesar, and you loved Caesar because you believed that Caesar was God. They believed Caesar was God, like the God, and you would say, you know, Caesar is Lord. They built a temple of Trajan there, and you could go to the temple where you could declare your allegiance that Caesar is Lord. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. I know it's very difficult sometimes to imagine. Imagine 2,000 years ago, you're living in this city, and you're an Orthodox, devout Jew. And you decided, you know I'm gonna go back and make the pilgrims with my family to Jerusalem for Passover. And so you get your kids and you pack everything up and you would get your caravans all packed up and you get your, everything in place and you get all your business fares situated. And then you would make the trek all the way back to Jerusalem. You get into Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of the Passover. You're there to celebrate the Passover, how God spared your life from Egypt. Even though you're not living in Jerusalem, you still celebrate what God did for you because you're a Jew. And while you were there, you hear these men begin to preach and talk about this guy named Jesus and it's curious to you. You hear about how he was the one who fed 5,000 men. How this guy over here, you can still see him walking around, how he healed him and now he's alive. You hear the stories about the claims that he made. You hear the story that he died and he was resurrected from the grave. You hear all about it and he's happened to be the Messiah. Your heart is stirred within you you decide right here at Passover to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to repent of your sins and put all your faith and trust in him. And now what you've realized, because it changed your heart and your life, is that he is Lord, not Caesar. You see that he has the wisdom, not Athena. That he's the great healer, not Asclepius. You go and say, he's the one that brings transformation, not Dionysus, and you realize that you put your faith into him, and now you go out and you're baptized in front of everybody to show that you're now a follower of Yeshua, the Messiah. And not only are you saved, your wife is saved, your kids are saved, and every single one of you are baptized. And you went to the Passover to celebrate what God's done, but you met Jesus, the God, and he changed your life. And now you're on your way back to Pergamum. You're on your way back to the city and you know something's different within you, and then you get to the city gates, and then it hits you. We're gonna be kicked out of the synagogue now. We probably will lose our job. We're gonna face massive amount of persecution. In fact, now it just clicked in you that a while back, a guy named Antipasus, was killed by the Roman governor for his faith. And now you realize it was the faith in Yeshua and Jesus that caused that, and now you've been changed and you're standing at the city gates and you're wondering, what should I do? This is the headquarter of the Roman government. The Roman governor lives in this city. It's the only city that was given the right for capital punishment. Maybe you heard, we live by the sword, we die by the sword. That came from Rome. The Roman governor would have a guy walk in front of him holding a sword out just like this everywhere he went in front of him because he had the right of capital punishment. He could say, let him live, turn the thumb up. Let him die, turn the thumb down. And we know because of history that the pastor of the small church, the bishop of the church, stood up for Christ and not for Caesar. And because of that, the Roman governor went down and the guy took the sword that he would carry and he rammed the sword and they were known as the place where you live by the sword or you will die by the sword. And now you're standing going, this is where I wanna take my family? You know persecution is coming your way. And now you find a small congregation and you get involved in this church and now you're sitting here and you're talking about Jesus and you found somebody to celebrate with you and and worship with you and have the same kind of thoughts that you have and sing the same hymns and you you read the same letters that may have been circulated from the apostles and and maybe from the gospels and you're sitting there in church and you're like, man, how do we deal with this? And you have a few people come up to you and say, hey, we figured out how we could do this. We figured out how we could be part of the culture and still be part of the church. I can show you how you can still go to the temple of Dionysus or Athena or Zeus and still come and worship Jesus as well. Come on, let us show you how you can still fit in the culture and still be part of the church. We're gonna show you how you can live in both worlds. Pleasing to the culture, don't offend them, but also to the church where you can live out your faith. This is what we want to help you and teach you to do. And so now you're sitting there going, okay, maybe you're true, and now you start to give in and you start to compromise what culture has pushed you to because you don't wanna be seen as an outcast, you don't wanna be persecuted, you don't wanna be canceled, you don't want people to think things about you, you don't wanna be a bigot, you don't wanna be somebody who's intolerant, you don't wanna be seen like that, so what do you do? You compromise. You compromise. I wanna live one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Does that resonate with anyone today? Do you see how something written 2000 years ago to a real church in a real area can connect with us today? And so it's with that background and context, Jesus pins a letter to this church. And we get to see what Jesus has to say about this. And that's where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter two, starting in verse 12. If y'all ready to get started, Say, so let's go. Oh my, y'all better buckle up. Here we go, verse 12. To the angel of the church, remember angel, this means messenger, the context is very, I believe, clear, the angel, the messenger, is the pastor of the church. We wrote a letter to the pastor to read to the churches. So to the letter, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, Writes this. Look what he says. Now, watch this. With that background, listen to what he says. The one who has the sharp two edged swords says this. Now, knowing the culture in the background of the Roman governor living there, walking with the sword in front of him, who thought he has the power of life and death, that he has the power to judge. Now, you're sitting in church, you're compromised, you're trying to live in the culture and live in the church. The pastor gets up and says, We got a letter from Jesus, the one that you gave your life to. Here's what he says He is the one that holds a sharp two edged sword. What does it mean? He is the one who can bring judgment. He is the one who can speak life or death. He's the ultimate one. In fact, there's so many verses, if you're taking notes, you can write them down, Isaiah 11:4, four, Isaiah 49, two, Ephesians 6, 17, but the biggest one is right here in Revelations chapter one. When we begin the book of Revelation, look what he says in verse 16. In his, that's Jesus' right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in his strength, which means that Jesus' words has the power to build or destroy, has the power of life and death. He doesn't have to have a sword. His words are a sword. And if you flip all the way back to the end of the book of Revelations, you know how he defeats Satan. You know how he defeats the beast? With his mouth. He speaks it and it's done. It's the sword. It's the sword. He has it. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, isn't it amazing Jesus knows everything? We read in the first book, of when he read when the first time we talked about Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, remember the first church we talked about? He says, I'm the one that walks around the lamp." Says, I'm the one that walks through the church. He is here. And look what he says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, there's been a lot of debate back and forth with scholars. What does it mean by Satan's throne? Well, we could see in just a moment all kinds of things. And you hold firmly to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of antipas you know the one you heard that got killed by the sword my witness my faithful one who was killed among you where satan dwells twice jesus says that well you could have pictured it right you can imagine here we have zeus we have demeter we have insipolis we have athena we have the imperial cult we have the caesar temple that you think caesar's god we have all these things. But he says, you have been faithful. Just like my pastor, just like my witness, Antipasus, was killed with the sword, you remain faithful. Verse 14, but, mm, man, don't you hate those? But what? But I have a few things against you. You've been faithful, but I have a few things against you. Because some of you, don't miss that word some, not all of you, See, if we wanna categorize once one person in the church goes crazy, you wanna categorize the whole church. No, some of you. Some of you are crazy. You're sitting there going, Pastor, I'm not crazy. No, that's why you're the crazy one. Look what it says. Some there hold to the teachings of Balaam and keep teaching Balak to put his stumbling block in front of the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now this is the problem with the church. This is where they're compromising. So you two have some in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, what is he talking about here? Write this down, Numbers, the book of Numbers, chapter 22 through 24, go home and read it. Long story short, King Balak, the Moabite king, hated the Israelites. He comes and gets the prophet, this prophet Balaam, it says, Balaam cursed the Israelites. Balaam goes out to curse them, he opens his mouth, and he only could speak blessings over the Israelites. God changes his words and he speaks blessings man said, what in the world's going on? Balaam said, I tried to curse him, but only blessings came out. Go do it again, I'm gonna pay you again. He goes, he says, I'm gonna curse you. And when he tries to curse with his mouth, only blessings come out. And now he's scratching his head going, I don't know what in the world, I'm gonna lose my life with this. He said, try a third time. And he goes out the third time, he gets to curse the Israelites. And when he opens his mouth to speak, blessings come out. And so King Balak says, what are you doing? You keep blessing them instead of cursing them. He says, well, I've got this idea. And you can read what happens in chapter 25. They got this scheme to go get the Moabite women to come in and and seduce the men of Israel. If you can't get them and force them, let's seduce them. We will entice them to worship our gods, we'll entice them to eat the meat sacrificed to our idols, we'll entice them into sexual immorality, chapter, Numbers chapter chapter 25, one and following. And because that, the women persuaded the men to do whatever they wanted them to do. God brings judgment in the end of Numbers chapter 25 and 24,000 Israelite men are killed because of the seduction. He said, this is what's happening just like the spirit of Balaam, just like the spirit of Boliath. There's a spirit like the Nicolaitans. There's a spirit that's moving among you that wants to have one foot in the culture and one foot in the church. You wanna continue to worship the idols and you wanna continue in sexual morality. That will not happen on my watch, King Jesus says. I am going to deal with that. Now one of the gods that we really didn't focus on that much when I went through is Dionysus. Dionysus is told, mythologically, has been told that it was the Zeus' son. Zeus comes down and has a, a, a relationship with a human woman, and Zeus's wife finds out kills the woman, but Zeus resurrects the son, resurrects Dionysus. This is all made up, it's myth, resurrects him, and now he becomes the, the god of vine making, of grapes, of figs of fermentation, of transformation. He's known all over the city as the God of resurrection because Zeus resurrected him. He's known for the God of transformation because he could take grapes and turn them into wine. He's known as the God of epiphany, which means people waited and longed for his appearance to show up because when he showed up, the party was on. He was the God of transformation. As a grape transfers into wine, a young boy into a man, as death into life, he is the transformation God. This is who I think when God says the throne of Satan, he's attacking right here because of the context. He's saying this is the problem that's going on at the church. This is the God of party, of drunkenness, ritual madness, ecstasy, or you can call it spring break or Mardi Gras. If we were leaving in a Greek, Greek mythology time, when we see those things, you would say they're celebrating the God of Dionysus. It's a spirit that moves through this, that I believe obviously is demonic spirit. I have a picture here, and this picture won't do it justice, but I wanna show you this. On your left, you can see a theater. You can go visit. This is Pergamon today. You could go visit this place. You see the theater. It's the steepest theater in the world. Just to put this in context, look here. 12,000 people can sit in that theater. That's how big it is. This is where all the altars so all the 61 gods, Zeus, Athena, all this. But if you look to your left, you see the theater, but go to your right, there's a little bitty ruin. What would happen is you would go to the theater and you would worship Dionysus. They would do a play in front of you behind, and you can't see because of the picture, but behind at the bottom is the sea. The wind would blow the vocals of the actors and the whoever's speaking up, so 12,000 people. It's brilliant how they built this thousands of years ago. And they would put on a play and they would parade around and then you would leave there and go to the temple to worship Dionysus. And once you worshiped, you would find these places all over the city of Pergamon where you would walk in and think of a bar. You would lay on your left side on the bar. They would come and give you wine till you can't drink anymore. And then they would bring to you raw meat from a bull with blood in it. Now, as a Jew, you know that. You don't eat raw meat with blood. They would eat this because the way for Dionysus to become one with you, to infiltrate you, is to drink wine, and when you do, he comes in, and to eat the meat of the bull because the bull represents Dionysus. So they would eat raw meat, they would drink the blood, and they would drink till they can't drink no more. Obviously, they would get sick, they would throw up, and then they would parade it out with women, prostitutes, who they would would sleep with and have all the sex morality with. And so the people in the church were still practicing Dionysus and worshiping Dionysus. And Jesus said, listen, this has got to stop. You have idols in your life and sex morality. And I'm going to come with you with the words out of my mouth and fix this problem. You're living in the throne of Satan. You see, I think the Apostle Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 5. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. See, when you know the context, you can see what he's talking about. One of the hardest passages in all the Bible is found in John chapter six, until you know the context. And it was when Jesus says, I truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. For if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will live. For my flesh and my blood is the real blood. Now, obviously, he's not a cannibal. He's obviously being allegorical here because in verse 58, he says, the blood in the body is the bread that's come down from heaven. And if you eat the bread of my life, you will have eternal life. That is a direct... Culture statement to everyone Worship Dionysus. See, when you know the culture and the context, it helps you put it in perspective. Now, fast forward today in our own life. How many is, I'm not just talking about, how many of the big C churches compromising? You see, compromising, when you compromise, if you think about it, compromises never happens quickly. No one just wakes up and says, today I'm gonna compromise. No one does that. You drift. Hebrews 2, 1 says, for this reason we pay much attention, close attention to what you have heard so that you do not drift away. And we see this all the time with believers. Guess what happens? First thing that goes away from you, you stop reading your Bible. I'm not gonna ask you how many of you read your Bible how many times this week, but you stop reading your Bible. You don't have time. I'm busy. Kids, life, this, that. Stop reading. The number one way that God wants to speak to you is through the Bible. Not me, not here on Sunday morning. The number one way that God wants to speak to you is through the Bible. And it's the number one thing Satan wants to keep you away from. So you stop reading the Bible. And then you start praying and you just feel off, right? You, but you still come to church. But then you start skipping every now and then. Now you come once or twice a month. And now you haven't been in a while and you feel bad. You feel something's off and you come and you haven't an experienced you. Okay, I gotta repent, get my life back, and you start all over. And it's just like oh, and you drift and you drift and you drift. No one wakes us up to compromise just like that. You begin to drift. Some of you are drifting this morning. And God brought you here to wake you up and said, the words out of his mouth wants to speak to you to change your heart. He's the God of transformation, not Dionysus. He's the one that has the power. And so you compromise never happens quickly. But listen, compromise always lowers the original standard. People who compromise always looking for the gray area. They wanna lower the standard. Hebrews ten let's hold firmly to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. You see, we lower the standard. This is God's standard, let's just lower it. Ah, did God really say? And honestly, compromise seldom is offensive. The reason why you compromise is because you don't offend nobody. Now, nobody wants to offend people, right? I mean, if you just get up every day of your life and go, I just wanna be an offender, I wanna offend people, you're a jerk. You know what I'm saying? Like No one wants to be that way. But let me tell you something about God's word. God's word says it's offensive. God's word will offend and prick your heart and lead you to repentance. And so people don't wanna be, they wanna compromise so they don't want to offend. So think about this. We lowered the standard. It's a gradual shift. And we can see this, man, we can go over and over and over. This is not political stuff. You can get over to it. It was like a marriage is between one man and one woman. Ah, well, come on, let's kind let's, of, let's, how can we compromise? Let's just come, can we come up with unions have a man and a man be together and a woman and a woman be together. Let's just, let's just call it, you don't, don't call it marriage. In fact, when President Obama ran for office, he ran with the same marriage view as Billy Graham. That marriage between one man and one woman until he got in the office and he changed it. Now, publicly, he said that. that that's what he stood for. And then something happened. Let's compromise. Let's like, ah, I got friends. I now understand. Let's, let's come a union. Let's not wanna push somebody out. Let's just redefine marriage, you see? And what, the church goes along with it. We can keep going on and on and on. That's not a political thing, this is what it is. We begin to come, it's not what it is. And we gradually start drifting, and now we have wokeness, and now we got critical race theory, and now like all this stuff, like what in the world? And we wanna compromise. Well, let's just, and now listen, now we're asking little kindergartners to choose what pronouns they should be. Well, we don't wanna offend them on it. Parents, sorry, you have no say-so in it. You call me, if they need to have taken Advil, I gotta give you permission but now you could go have a sex change and I don't get to say so about it? And listen, listen, I'm not trying to be mean, but what's, it's a gradual shift. Culture drives, drifts and drifts and drifts away when, nobody, when we compromise. And some of you know that, right? I mean, some of, you, some of your family, you're there, you, you're here right now and you're working through these things with your child or with your kid or with a family member, you're there. But listen, we cannot compromise. We have to figure out how do we speak truth. But the double-edged sword, you know what the double-edged sword was? It was grace and truth. That's the double-edged sword. It's grace and truth. The old preachers, I go. I got time for this. The old preachers, when they're preaching grace, you can look at their Bibles. Go watch. The old preachers, they hold their Bible like this. And they got that look like, come on, let's go. And they'll preach. This is when you know they're preaching Grace. See their Bible, the sword. This is the sword, the Spirit. of Ephesians says this. Must be. But when they want to speak truth, man, bam! They throw that thing over there like this. You go watch those old preachers. Here's I'm speaking at you, right at you. Come on, but there's grace. But now there's truth. But there's grace. I'm telling you, go watch those old old preachers. That's what they'll do. That's how it goes. The word of the God is grace and truth. We have to be men and women of grace and truth, and not compromise. So my question to you is, where are you compromising? Where are you compromising in your life right now? Let's go like this, he addresses two things, idol worshiping and sexual morality. What idol are you worshiping right now? An idol is anything you put before God. Anything you put before him is an idol in your life. And you, know what you can't justify, you say, I don't worship that. What you talk about the most is your God. Well, you spend the most of your time in that that's your God. Think about it, for some of you, it's your job. Your job has become your idol. Your education has become your idol. What people's opinion about you has become your idol. We could go on and on. Money's become your idol. Status become your idol. Your sports has become your idol. Listen, your political party has become your idol. You see what I'm saying? There's idols in your life. We all have them and battle them. Jesus, listen, he speaks to us today what idols you need to deal with. And if you don't, I'm gonna come deal with them. And he will get our attention with the words out of his mouth. Maybe for you it's sexual morality. What's sexual morality? Now, what do you mean by sexual morality? Anything that's sexual immorality. Anything. And people always say, What's the gray area you hear? Sexual sin. That means sex before marriage. That means sex outside of your marriage. That means same sex sex is a sin just like outside of a heterosexual marriage is a sin. So what's sex? Pornography is a sin, lusting is a sin, and we live in this sex-crazed world right now where people wanna have one foot in the church and one foot in the culture. It's the exact same thing, it's the same spirit, Satan's throne, he calls it. And so many of us are so blind to see this because we wanna compromise and not offend nobody. And you're gonna have an opportunity to compromise, but you're also gonna have the opportunity to speak the truth in love, to stand firm. He said, you held faithful to my name. Some of you have gone astray, but a lot of you held to my name. So how do I fix this? How do I fix where I compromise? Well, he tells us, look what he tells us, verse 16. Repent. You mean I'm, I'm, I'm having sex with my girlfriend and you know, we don't know if we're gonna get married yet, this is the 21st century, everybody's doing it, you know what I mean, you know, all this stuff. You mean that all I gotta do is repent and God will forgive me, yeah. Oh, there's consequences to your sin. In fact, sexual sin, the Bible says is sticky sin. It will stick with you, it will wreck you, it will mess with you. In fact, most people's guilty conscience, they come to me and they've been married for 20, 30 years or whatever it may be, most people come to mind with a guilty conscience, it's because of sexual sin they did when they were younger because it's messy, there's consequences, but you could be forgiven right now, right now. Pastor, I looked at porn last night, what do you want? Repent, repent. Pastor, I'm worshiping my job and my bank account, repent. Pastor, I'm worshiping what people think about me and people's opinion about me is what motivates me to live. Repent. Isn't it amazing that here's a God who speaks to our sin and our life, but has the grace and the mercy to instantly forgive us of that sin? Right now. But I feel guilty, I feel dirty, I feel bad, I gotta make it up, Jesus already paid for it. Repent. Repent means I need to turn my mind, change my mind. I need to see the truth of this. The truth is not the sin, the truth is what Jesus says. So I'm gonna turn my mind from sin to God which will turn my heart, which will turn my actions. How do I know that I truly repented of that sin? I stopped doing it. Repent. And I hope the rest of this verse, as you read, it says, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Listen to me, folks. You don't want God waging war against you. And we see right now that we see what's going on in our world, that the whole world is turning. I'm telling you, man, we've never been closer to setting up what God's gonna do. They're not waging war against Israel. Israel will not defeat them. The God of Israel will defeat them. The God of Israel will defeat them. And we know Israel will remain a nation, will, will remain a country. We see it all the way through the scripture to the end. We're gonna talk more about that on Wednesday. But he says this, I will wage war against them. Remember the prophet Balaam? You know how he was killed? With the sword. See how all this connects here? And then lastly, verse 17, the one who has the ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit of God's here and he's speaking to your life. This was written 2,000 years ago and it's so applicable to every single one of us today. I pray that you would open your ears and let the Spirit of God speak to you what he wants to speak into your life. And listen, to the one who overcomes, this is so good. How do you become an overcomer? You put your faith in the one who's overcome the world. Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. You can overcome the world. You put your faith in Jesus, you can become an overcomer. To those who overcome, watch this, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it and the stone which no one knows except the one who receives it now for Tom's sake scholars debated over and over what in the world's hidden manna what's the stone and there's all kinds of things out there hidden manna means you could talk about the manna from heaven and talk about when you eat you know, in the, uh, the millennial, when the, lamb, lamb, with the feast of the Lamb of God, we eat together. The white stone was a token when you went into a, a mission, when you went somewhere that you had a token and showed the token. Um, it was a victory crown when you won in the Olympics that give you a white stone that you're victorious, that you won. So, so many options about what that could be. For the heck, just for this time's sake, let me just tell you where I think about it. I think the hidden manna was where do we find manna hidden anywhere in the Bible? It's found when he put in the Ark of the Covenant. They took the manna, they put some in the Ark of the Covenant, and they sealed it in the Ark of the Covenant. History tells us that it was taken by an angel. It was hidden to the time when Jesus comes back to reign. And he'll have the Ark of the Covenant with him. And in there's the hidden manna. He's saying, I am the one. i am the bread of life. And I will give you some of this hidden manna, which is from God, which is me. I am God. Is that true? May not be not. I'll let you know when we get to heaven, okay? I don't know. But when he talks about hidden manna, that's the only place in the Bible we saw where manna was hidden from people when it was put in the Ark of the Covenant. The white stone. You remember I told you about Asipulus and the snakes crawling all over people? Some of you are gonna be ruined tonight thinking about that. You know what happened at the end when they came out of the chamber and they were healed? They'd go over to this white stone and they would etch their name into the stone and they would give a testimony of what and how they were healed. You can go there today and see, here's, here's, here's one, I'll give you an example. Here's a white stone outside the temple and it is engraved with people's names on it. So when Jesus writes this letter to a place where the, the temple of syphilis was that he says, you put your name on it, on this white stone, here's what I mean. The reason you would etch your name on the stone is so that when people walk by, that you would testify, it would testify about what was healed and how you were changed. I believe that Jesus is saying here, the white stone is you. You are now the white stone. I have etched my name in your life. You have a new name, a new heart, a new creation. And now as the stone testifies, you are to be the testimony. You are to go out and testify about the life change that takes place. You testify that I'm the healer. I'm the provider. I'm the all-powerful. I'm the all-knowing. I'm the one with wisdom. I'm the God of resurrection. I'm the God of life and death. I'm the God that can bring transformation. You go and testify and live in Pergamum. Get out of the culture. Literally, the problem, the church. The problem wasn't the church was in Pergamum. The problem that Pergamum was in the church. The sin was there. You're not going to be taken out of this world. We're to go be watch this living stones, living stones to be testimony into this world. And your testimony will show in rain. Tree, watch this. When you take one foot out of the culture and trying to be. Compromising, and you stand and hold firm to your faith, to his word, and to his name. I'm gonna ask you, we just to bow your heads, just for a moment. What is the Spirit saying to you this moment? What's the Spirit speaking into your life? If the Holy Spirit's convicting you of a sin in your life, confess it, repent right now, repent. You don't have to take that home, repent right now, and he will forgive you. If you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, the Bible says, just like we talked about, earlier, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord. And you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord and watch out all of our campus, Ashland, doesn't matter wherever you're online, wherever you are, right now you can give your life to Jesus and right now you can be saved. And I'm here to tell you, the day is dawning, the clock is turning, Jesus is prepping. There's no doubt about it, that we're seeing the birth pains and you wanna be ready. You wanna be ready. Father, we thank you so much for your word, how relevant it is. God, forgive us, we repent. We're trying to have one foot in the culture and one foot in the world and in the church compromising, Lord, maybe our values or our convictions because of persecution or being canceled or labeled. But God, you wrote these, to these seven churches that speak to us today, that we are to hold firm, that we are overcomers, that you fight our battles, that you go ahead of us. And as we just sang the song, that we will not bow to idols, We'll stand strong and worship you i pray oh god that you give us the wisdom the discernment the conviction the strength the courage to be the men and women god you've called us to be for your name we ask and we pray amen